Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference, focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. With me on today's show, I am delighted to have Keith Tuffley. Keith is the global co-head of the Global Sustainability and Corporate Transitions Group at Citi. In this role, Keith leads Citi's sustainability engagement with its corporate clients. Previously, Keith was the CEO of the B-Team, a non-governmental organization comprised of 24 CEOs of global companies, leading entrepreneurs and civil society leaders to drive a better way of doing business. He was an active participant in the Paris Climate Agreement process by helping to mobilize CEOs in support of ambitious climate targets and assisting the B-Team companies in making bold net zero by 2050 commitments, which is so brilliant and so needed. So we're going to talk about today, what is the purpose of business in the 21st century? How has that changed? And what are the values and skills needed by business leaders in this era of creating stakeholder value? So Keith joins the show today to discuss these emerging topics and share his expertise. Keith, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, hi, Maureen. Really, it's, it's a delight to be on, on this and uh, really thank you for inviting me. So before we jump in, is there anything you want to tell our listeners about you? Well, I think you've, you've given me given them all a quick summary. And uh, look, I've been in a, in a very, very lucky and, and fortunate position of evolving, I guess, the, the things that I do with my interest in sustainability and the transformations we need in the 21st century. So having been in, in banking for a long time, but having the great fortune of also being very involved in impact investing and then uh, running a, an NGO called the B Team for a number of years during the Paris Agreement, as you just mentioned. And now, again, in the banking world, interacting with great leaders in the world, I've been very lucky and fortunate. And I think we're just entering a, a very exciting decade of substantial change. So I'm looking forward to this discussion with you, Maureen. Thank you. And likewise, one of the things I heard from a futurist recently is that we will see more change in this decade than we've seen over the course of human history. Even if that is exponentially wrong, to your point, we are in for a massive ride over the next decade. I would actually agree with that, that comment that was made. There are so many drivers of what's, what's going to be a, a truly transformational decade. You know, I think we'll be sitting here in 10 years' time, Maureen, looking back 10 years and saying, wow, what, what we've gone through. Now, of course, it's very unpredictable and it won't be a straight line ride. It's going to be very rocky. It's going to be very, you know, there's going to be some failures and there's going to be booms and busts in my view. But I think the, the, the direction of travel is so extraordinarily exciting and for all of us. I think there's multiple dimensions of this. And we, when you think about the frameworks of the Paris Agreement, 
which has ultimately a sort of a, a 2050 scientific basis to it, i.e. we have to try to achieve a 1.5 to well under 2 degrees world. We have the, the Sustainable Development Goals, which have a 2030 target, and we're trying to create a world which is much more sustainable and fairer and more equitable to everyone. So the drive is really speeding up, and I think COVID has substantially accelerated things. But, Lauren, I'd be interested in your own view on this. This is my view, but are you the view that we're going to be in for a a pretty exciting and transformational decade? Yes, I agree. It's been interesting to watch, you know, at the beginning of things, as I reflect back on my early career, where email was just a new thing, where the laptop computer was a new thing. And I was working with a computer company. We were doing a proposal and our client was asking for a megabyte of storage or something like that. And we thought, you know, back then it was it would have been a warehouse full of computer drives. And we thought, no way would they need that. Now I have more than that on my mobile phone. Looking at how technology has accelerated, and that doesn't even speak to the acknowledgement that we are living on a global planet with in an environment where we are consuming more than the planet's worth of resources every year. At some point, that equation must be solved or we no longer get to live the lives we're living. Your work is foundational in helping people be aware and then take action that allows us to, if we're proactive, make those shifts in a more sustainable way, like buying electric cars rather than having some crisis that puts us in a place where where the shifts aren't no longer slow. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. And I think you know, what, what you're pointing out about sort of the ecological crisis is, is spot on. I mean, I, I had the good fortune of being chairman of a, a wonderful NGO called the Global Footprint Network, founded by a very talented individual by the name of Matisse Fackenagel, based in California. And it measures the ecological footprint of countries, of states, of us as individuals. And of course, that includes not just emissions, because that's a major footprint, but also the other ecological impacts, such as ongoing deforestation, impacts of plastics in the oceans, microplastics, etc. And what is fascinating is back in the, about 1965, 1970, we were, we, were, we were in basically in balance. You know, the population was a lot smaller. The impacts per person were a lot smaller. But since, since the 1960s and 70s, it's increased substantially due to both population growth and due to our increasing negative impacts on the planet. But, of course, the planet also has a regenerative capacity. And, and so it can absorb, it can bounce back. But at the moment, you are absolutely right, Maureen, we're, we're digging into it in a way that's creating a deficit. So this group creates also a thing called the, the World Overshoot Day. I'm sure everyone's heard about this. It's the day in the year at which point it's estimated or beyond that point, we are digging in in, in, a, in a deficit form. And, of course, that, that, that date has been creeping forward every single year. Now, this year it's gone backwards because of COVID. But look, we're informed by the science now. We have all, you know, we have nearly all the scientific data we need to understand that we are living in both a climate crisis as well as an ecological crisis. But we also have the tools and we have the wherewithal. We have the, we should have the determination and the commitment, but we sometimes underestimate the innovative skills and abilities of humanity. And I'm absolutely convinced that when we 
when we create the right environment for people to be truly innovative and creative using both technology as well as the other innovations, we can solve this and we can create a more prosperous, a more equitable and certainly a more balanced world. I absolutely agree. And it seems like it is largely creating the conditions in which people can engage in the innovation and engage in their own behavior change and removing the conditions that stand in the way or limit the barriers to innovation. Yeah, I, I agree. And this is where I think it comes back to leadership of companies, for example, is what do we need now for the private sector to be real solution providers to these global challenges rather than the sort of the old way of thinking, which was that the purpose of a company is to make money for shareholders as the primary, if not the sole purpose. And of course, that's evolved tremendously. But, but the, the private sector, whether it's large companies, large public companies, small family-owned companies, investors, have such a critical role and an opportunity to partake in this. And when you release that innovation amongst all of your employees, that's a far better solution provider than as if it's just coming from the top. And that's why I think it's transforming the type of leadership we need in the 21st century to actually really address some of these global challenges, but in a very exciting way, because we all then have, every employee should have a, an opportunity to participate in this innovation and to ensure that, that every company, every investor and every government is actually working together in a collaborative way to, to help address these issues. But you know, as I say, in a way which is driving more prosperity and not, not, not seeing, being seen as a as a cost to doing business, but actually an opportunity to transform a business. So you've walked around this. What is your view on the purpose of business in the 21st century? Well, I think it's certainly transformed from what it was back, you know, back in 1970s, 80s and 90s, where the Milton Friedman Chicago School of Economics theory was, was rife. And that was the purpose of business in those days was seen to be, well, at least the primary purpose was seen to be to make money for shareholders. I think what's happened is that it has been proven over the years that, yes, it's driven a lot of a lot of wealth creation, but it's also driven a lot of inequality and it's also driven a lot of environmental, negative environmental impacts. On top of that, we also have a whole new set of challenges in the 21st century as we head to a population from 7.6 billion today going to 10 billion together with the increased impacts on the planet from rising wealth. and Hence, we have a whole new set of challenges. So I think the role of business has fundamentally transformed. I think it's now become a true stakeholder approach where it's not just, by the way, shareholders, local communities, obviously your employees, customers, suppliers, etc. It's also the planet as a whole. It's actually a broader concept of what can you contribute as a business to help to solve global challenges not all of them, obviously, but you pick what where you can contribute and in a way which is driving your own your own performance. So I think the sustainable development goals is a fantastic framework for that. But that that's how I would describe it. I wish I could describe that in one sentence, Maureen. Maybe you can maybe you, you can you can help me with that, but that's how I describe it. What, what what do you think? I agree that it and I don't have a one sentence thing either, but it certainly is as a member of a global community. It is to to balance the needs of, of our key stakeholders, of which, and I know some people will hear this and think it's a little airy-fairy, but the idea that the future is also a stakeholder. 
now I think of like what we do in, in for sporting events. We put the cutouts in front of in the seats. If I were to have a meeting and I put the cutouts of of who are my stakeholders, it's my employees, my financial constituents, my customers or clients, the community in which we live and work or communities. In some cases, that's the global community, the ecosystem. And I would say the future generation that will be served or taxed based on how we've navigated resources. Are they inheriting a debt that is so big that they're going to be paying taxes for their entire lives for money that we have spent before they were even born? And of course, you're referring to taxes, not just in a financial sense of paying paying off the, the financial cost but it's the broader tax and it's actually what they have to pay because we as a generation under our under our watch because we now know it's not like it's been a, a sort of a an unknown outcome we, we are the scientists are informing us about the impacts we're having on the planet through emissions through through other ecological impacts and we've got all that or as much data as we need to know we have to transform but you're right it's the biggest danger i think maureen is we actually end up tipping the planet over what they call these ecological tipping points. And this is where the work of people like Professor Johan Rockström at the Potsdam Institute for Climate, previously the Stockholm Resilience Centre, and a whole bunch of other scientists have really contributed a lot, which is that we could be putting parts of the planet across a tipping point by, from which we cannot retreat, at least for hundreds if not thousands mm -hmm. of years. And that's when it gets very, very dangerous. Now, we don't know for sure. You know, it's not, we haven't gone through this before, so we don't know, but that's the really scary part. And I think we, we definitely owe it to our children and future generations that we, we, should, we just can't let that happen. We, we have, we, we've got the tools. We just have to ensure that we, we use them in a way that ensures that we, we protect our planet and for the sake, for the sake of people. But the planet will survive, but ultimately it's, it's people and other animals and, and, and the biodiversity of the planet that can be you know, permanently disrupted. So it's a very crucial time in, in history, in, in my view. So how are you seeing businesses, NGOs, governments moving from shareholder to stakeholder models? And I realize government is different, but they can reinforce that movement or not. Well, I think what's happened the last five years or so with the, pa the, 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 the Paris Agreement is a bit of magic, right? I mean, to bring 195 countries together in a way to agree about what the long-term goal needs to be to ensure that we limit catastrophic change, but also a mechanism by which we can achieve it, a, a broad mechanism. It's, it really is a brilliant piece of negotiation. And secondly, the Sustainable Development Goals, which lead out to 2030. These are the two frameworks that we have now there should be a third framework hopefully this year is is negotiated and agreed but it may not be as strong or as ambitious as the paris agreement and that's an agreement around nature and biodiversity so cop 15 is occurring hopefully in in kunming in china later this year and so hopefully that will give us another pillar or framework for us to to achieve it so they're the in my view the, the key frameworks now business has increasingly realized that shifting from the shareholder value approach of the 70s, 80s, and 90s to much more of the stakeholder approach. And even as I just said, to a, even a broader objective. And what you you are you you have that same view is it's the planet, it's the future generations, it's 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 the people who 
will inherit what we what we what we leave. And companies are realizing, CEOs are realizing, boards are realizing that it can't be achieved without the private sector taking a leading role, if not the leading role. Governments have a whole bun- bundle of restrictions. You know, it's politics. It's changing you know, the inability to to cut through when you've got a parliamentary system. There are challenges. Whereas for companies, you can be far more mobile, and mm-hmm. and also actually in some type, some senses more more influential. So you think of the big global companies. So I think it's 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 a recognition that there's a responsibility a responsibility, but there's also a real economic opportunity. It's not about it's just doing good and doing something responsible. It's actually about recognizing this is a way to create shareholder value as well as stakeholder value. And so so I think it's it's that transformation in thinking. You know, we're we're now living in the Anthropocene. And that whole concept of the Anthropocene is changing all of our understanding of of the new era that we live in, which is that we're no longer in the Goldilocks period of the Holocene. We've now changed things. The human impact is now so profound. And understanding of that is is so critical for for our future thinking. So it's bringing that thinking into corporate behaviour and now driving that down into tangible ways, company by company. And it's wonderful seeing the amount of innovation that's occurring in companies to put that into actual practice. It's very inspiring. And to your point, one, large globals have the biggest opportunity to do that. And it seems also the biggest responsibility. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And, and yeah, they've got the resources, they've got the people, you know, they've got the, the geographical presence. I think sometimes the, it's underestimated what positive impact any company can have beyond their own employees even. You know, when you think about what you can do with customers and clients and your supply chain, and the influence that we can we can use, and that's that's been a big change in thinking as well, hasn't it, Maureen? That we are companies can influence beyond what they think they can do. But also, I'll be interested in your own views about the role of smaller businesses as well, because they've got a major role to play. But did you have a view on how smaller businesses, mid-sized businesses, can play in, in this debate as well? I do, and thank you for asking that. You know, one of the things I'm seeing is small businesses can innovate faster. And so the partnering and even the acquisition of small businesses being the flywheel of innovation and then large companies either negotiating across cross sector or acquiring. So I think it was J&J I spoke with one of their innovation leads and he said their model was going out to these small businesses and I think it was J&J, IBM and then these almost an incubator of small businesses where the small businesses create the IP, they create the new products. And then across the sectors, IBM helps with J&J implement within their companies, but also cross industry. And I can give an example of what Nike did. And this was an older example where in their manufacturing in China, they discovered they had issues with VOCs. So they worked with someone to create a solution and then went to their competitors and said, we need to collectively implement these changes across the supply chain. So it's, it is good business to not poison the people who are producing your products. And it is often the smaller companies that are able to move just more quickly. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I know you're familiar with the, the, the B Corp movement. And I think that's a great example, isn't it, of mostly smaller businesses. It was sort of designed around, you know, emerging entrepreneurs and smaller businesses. And it's a way in which they can sign up to, if not a philosophy about business and a whole approach to business and then get certified and you've got to make sure that that is, is actually incorporated into your constitution. It's amazing to see how that, that, that movement of B Corps, mostly small companies, has or is now changing the mindset. I, I, we're now receiving a lot of large companies who are coming to us and saying, should we get certified as a B Corp? And you, know, you see Danone in North America, you see Natura in Brazil, and I know a number of very large companies that are looking to, 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 to now finish off their certification process but it's it's you know that's a movement created by small businesses again if, if you know a small business as you say Maureen can really propagate well beyond just themselves if they are able to think through again their supply chain their value chain but also other peer companies and then you can create a movement out of that philosophy that approach and it has had real impact in the world and so it's it's as you say innovation and and the ability to be very nimble mm-hmm. um, that's going to be increasingly important this decade isn't it larger companies have to be somewhat bureaucratic to function across the globe and smaller companies can be more nimble because of their size so the the alliances whether they're strategic partnerships or acquisitions or licensing agreements really creates the pipeline that that is appropriately structured to meet each of the stakeholder objectives. And this gets back to your point about stakeholder capitalism, that our stakeholders are now defined as these strategic partners as well. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's very true. So we're seeing this in the financial markets now too. I'm sure you've, you know, your, your audience has heard about the, the boom in, in special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs. Well, what's fascinating is that a number of them are what we call ESG SPACs, meaning they have an ESG mm. investment thesis. You know, they're looking to participate in the energy transition or they're looking to find emerging companies where ESG is a core or sustainability is a core part of their, their, their thinking and their being. And it's a way to get capital to them. So you raise capital and they buy or they merge with a high growth, a smaller company. And it's been a very effective way for us to facilitate the shift of capital to help those ESG good or sustainability driven businesses smaller, but they're now emerging and growing very quickly. So it's, you know, we, we, do, we are finally seeing the financial markets really supporting some of these emerging businesses. And that's going to be a huge accelerator. You're with Keith Tuffley and Maureen Metcalf, and we are talking about sustainability across the globe and how City is supporting it. And also for listeners, really, I want to encourage you to ask the question, what are you doing? What is your organization doing? And how do you support this, whether or not you are working for a large enterprise? Keith, let's now jump into the question of leadership. How do leaders, what role do leaders play as we're talking about how we shift the role of businesses in this new era? If you accept what we just spoke about and the thesis that we are now entering into this whole new purpose of business where it's driven by a broader stakeholder value approach, 
The first thing is obviously is an understanding about who your stakeholders are and the ability to communicate with them and the ability to, to resonate with them. Whereas if I take ourselves back 20, 30 years ago, where really the role of the board and the role of the CEO was primarily focused on their investors, the shareholders, and, and, and even the, the, the individuals chosen to be on boards and chosen to be the CEO were individuals who would resonate with and understood primarily, if not only, investors. Now, of course, that's changed. We need a skill base and a leadership style that suits the fact that there is a very different purpose to business and there's a whole group of other stakeholders that need to be engaged with in a very, in a very important way. So you think about how a leader of a company obviously needs to be resonating with and connecting with all of their employees, all of their customers, all of their supply chain and all of the local communities that they're involved with. And even broader than that, NGOs who are looking to, to effect change in the world. So there's a lot of different stakeholder groups now involved and therefore leadership has to evolve to both understand them, understand where they're coming from, what their priorities are, to be able to communicate them effectively, to embrace them, bring them into the tent and not just have just purely sort of communications with, with just, just investors. Now, importantly, it's, it's also a recognition that if all those stakeholders are looked after, actually investors are looked after even, even better, right? So that, it's that whole thesis that this is not about a cost of doing business. It's actually about driving better outcomes for all parties, including investors. So I think that's the primary shift, in my view, about the role of you know, the evolution of leadership for the 21st century. It's that stakeholder approach. But I'd be interested in your views, Maureen, about how you would, you would address that as, as well. I absolutely agree that who I see as my primary stakeholders has to change, especially for large organizations. But as you say, even smaller B Corps, that by the nature of being a B Corp, I am acknowledging that I am driven for the, the greater good, not just for profit. Now, lots of small companies that I know are already motivated by greater good even before there was the term B Corp. They had the freedom because they're smaller or because they're family owned or privately held that they could make decisions that more played to their values and their conscience than their pocketbooks. So acknowledging that there are many leaders who have been in this way of doing business before it became a structured framework how are you seeing leaders move forward? Are boards now hiring CEOs with this broader perspective? We've still got a, a lot of people who are in the traditional system. It's worked for them, and they're not yet giving up the way they've seen the world. And then another group of folks who are saying, we absolutely need to move more quickly. So I, I do see a bit of both points of view right now. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, there's a bit of tension there, isn't there? Because we are shifting. For example, boards. Now, in, in big public companies, yeah, the majority of board members tend to be those in their 60s, for example. Yes, you get some younger board members, but as a, if you cut across all, all of all those major boards, they're mostly people in their 60s. Now, as we've just been saying, we, we both think that we're entering a very different decade you know, in the start of this 
the next decade of this century, but it's, a, it's going to be a very disruptive decade. And, and that, that creates a need for board members to have a different set of skills. We've just spoken about stakeholder value but and other stakeholders, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's understanding of the science. It's understanding of climate change science sufficiently that you can make informed decisions. If you don't understand the basics of climate science, you don't understand that we're currently on a path under current policies to three, three and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times, then you take very different decisions. So I think it's the responsibility now, for example, of boards to re-equip themselves. They have to fundamentally retrain themselves and sometimes unlearn what they've learned, but also having real expertise at the board level, not just a knowledge, but actually real experts. Because if you put that thesis together, stakeholder value, therefore broader stakeholders, mm -hmm. secondly, major global changes and uh, challenges in the world that we need to address. Thirdly, the private sector has a major role to play in addressing that. Then clearly you need to have true expertise at the board level. You know, there's a movement called the climate competent boards where, where there's not, you know, basically we don't have enough boards who have real competency in climate. And so getting real expertise at the board level on that is going to be increasingly, increasingly important. But I also think that it's, it's not just that, it's also about diversity of thinking, not just mm -hmm. diversity of people, but because if we have to address these big challenges and it's going to be a very disruptive decade, then by definition we have to have out-of-the-box thinking. And you don't achieve that by the same sort of people in the same book in the room. You have very different thoughts coming around. So I think that the need to have real diversity in thinking in the boardroom is going to become increasingly important. Is that does, is that something that you agree with, uh, Maureen? Or I'm happy to be uh, pushed back on, by the way, but uh, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Actually, I'm looking at our competency model as you're talking, and I'm going to read a couple of them back to you. Intellectually versatile. So I no longer just know my business or my industry or my functional area, but I need to understand a much broader range of issues like climate science, like understanding the political landscape around the world. Those things that were not required are now required. 360 degree thinking, I need to understand a much broader range of variables as I think about where does my company fit within the industry, within the global ecosystem, and what are my interconnected organizations. I was actually talking to a seminary class the other day, and we just had Elon Musk do the $1.5 billion contribution to Bitcoin or acquisition of Bitcoin, whatever the wording is, and asking, are they now looking at accepting Bitcoin for their weekly donations? Nobody would have brought up a question like that before. And now the intersection across industries shouldn't be ignored. And then one of the others is innately collaborative, welcoming collaboration and a quest for novel solutions that create the highest outcome for all, all involved, which means I really need to collaborate with people who see the world differently. If I'm looking in the mirror and collaborating with myself, one of us is not useful. So how do we fill a room with people with fundamentally differing points of view with a level of civility that I'm, to your point, willing to unlearn or let go of my 
point of view in service of elevating the way I think. And we don't teach that. We don't teach it in business school. We don't teach that in leadership training. We're often taught to be the smartest people in the room. And yet we can't have a room of 10 people who think they're all the smartest. Yeah willing to to then innovate and create new solutions. So we as leaders need to bring on things like humility. And the other one is unwavering commitment to right action. And I realize right is a subjective in some cases. And, and we could also argue that, yeah, taking care of the planet is right. So in my view, we are looking at leadership mindsets as much as behaviors And the research says, depending on which data you look at, between one and a half to four percent of business leaders test at the level that they can behave this way. So it is not yet common. No, it's not, is it? No. I mean, I think you raised some other really important points there, Maureen, such as what are the right incentives that leadership, say CEOs, should have going forward? So again, back to the board, because the board sets the incentives for the CEO. Does the board, the boards have the right skills at the moment to actually think about what those right metrics are, having regard to what we're talking about, broader stakeholder value, and therefore it's not just about financial returns in the company, having environmental and social returns is, is just as important, and therefore what metrics should be used and what incentives should be provided. So on the metrics, think about how... There's been a growing number of of experts and NGOs thinking about how do we internalise the negative externalities that companies are producing. So there's a great group led by Harvard University and Sir Ronald Cohen called the Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative. Mm. And that's that's a system for, as you know, for measuring and internalising in the accounts of a company what would otherwise be just simply unrecorded externalities. Think of pollution, but also think of positive things, you know, the positive impacts on, on the planet and on, on people. The fact that a company like Danone in France is producing what they call a carbon-adjusted EPS figure. So it's an earnings per share, but it's adjusted for the carbon emissions scope one, scope two, scope three. You know, there's a lot of this new metrics. And then on top of that, it's, okay, what are the financial incentives that CEOs should have to ensure that they're personally aligned with the non-financial, i.e. the social and environmental objectives of the company. And again, that, I think that's a really fast-growing area of expertise. So I think we're going to see a lot of change in the next few years. At the moment, as I understand that only about a fifth, 20% of companies have any form of environmental and social metrics for CEO pay and that needs mm. to go to basically needs to go to 100%. So there's a long way to go to get that to get that right. So are you working extensively with boards in your current role to help them get up the curve with things like CEO pay? Yeah, we are now. It's amazing. I mean, I've uh, I've seen a substantial change this in the last 18 months. Uh, basically 18 months ago you were knocking on the doors trying to convince even our own bankers to say now let's try to get into the boardroom so that we can help them on their transformation journeys, help to educate them, help to arm them with the information they need. Whereas now it's the reverse. We're getting complete reverse inquiries from boards, from CEOs who are asking us to come in and present to them to help them on their journey, to help them to understand the bigger issues around 
ESG around, and, and a lot of this is driven from investors. Because again, if you take us back two or three years ago, most CEOs would say to me, look, we don't hear this from our investors. We hear it from NGOs, we hear it from governments, but we don't hear it from investors. Whereas now, what they're saying is that in the first five minutes or 10 minutes of an investor meeting, ESG comes up and it's a major and a growing issue. So it is really intensifying. And so, yes, we're getting a lot of inquiries now of, of, of presenting to and being in the boardroom, whether that's arming them with climate change knowledge, arming them with uh, broader sustainability issues, how investors are thinking, risks of government policy and regulation, what their competitors are doing. And it's creating this sort of virtuous circle of every bit of influence is creating another bit of influence, which is creating a faster and more you know, acceleration of the whole movement. So it's substantially changed. I'm sure you've seen the same, Maureen. I'm seeing the beginning of it, but again, that tension with interest, but not yet the level of acceptance it's more of an inquiry awareness. And what I'm curious about is, I mean, my sense is we make the change first at the board level, because if your CEO gets too far ahead of the board, it's hard for them to retain their role. So in that way, the the pull from investors, the shift in the board, and it would be brilliant if concurrently our CEOs and C-suites were moving along quickly which does require the the training. I would say, again, the mindset shift. I'm not following the recipe card, but I, I fundamentally believe that these are required. So getting boards there, getting executives there, which is the training, the mindset shift, the, the systemic pay measures, culture of this is what we collectively value. And my sense is some of our younger employees are already there and they're moving toward companies that are more socially conscious. So I'm not sure there's as much work to do with the millennials and and younger, but that middle band. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, on that theme, we're also seeing a need or many questions about the what we call the emerging ecosystem of sustainability or ESG. And what does that mean? It means all these ESG rating agencies, so similar to credit rating agencies, the ESG rating agencies, who, as you know, they they run through a whole bunch of scoring systems to better measure the the, the sustainability performance of companies. I'm also finding that boards are asking about the new language that they have to learn, Uh, all these new acronyms of TCFD and you know, SBTI and SASB and new concepts like planetary boundaries and sustainable development goals and what is 1.5 degrees? What does net zero 2050 mean? Why is it net zero 2050? So there's a whole new set of, of words, of concepts, of, of acronyms of, and an ecosystem for them to learn. And so we're being asked to, to help that information as well, which is, which is great. I mean, it's amazing seeing how they're, they're shifting very quickly. So when you say ask to help them, what do you do concretely that helps leaders move along that curve? Well, fundamentally, I'd put it into two buckets. Firstly, it's to make them more aware of what we've just been talking about, the Uh evolution of the purpose of companies, the need for them to be more purposeful, why it's in their own interests to be more purposeful, 
the the need to you know to understand the these these revolutions that are going on now, which we are in. Often we don't we don't see it, but mm-hmm. seeing the amount of capital that's shifting towards high growth companies driven by sustainability factors is is extraordinary. We're seeing that in the share prices of companies like Tesla and Orsted and Vestas and NL, etc. So you know, I think I think it's that understanding and the urgency of of moving. The second thing is practical solutions. So what do they do about it? So things like financing solutions, KPR-linked financing, KPR-linked bonds, ESG thematic SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, strategies they put in place to achieve a a true transformation to, to, to get to a truly sustainable business model. The practical, tangible solutions they can take back the next morning to the office and put in place. They're, they're the fundamental, the tools for them to get going. And that's what we as a bank provide, shifting capital, our own lending, capital markets access, et cetera. They're the fundamental things that we provide to our clients to help make them become more sustainable and in that way also, also more profitable. So we have a couple minutes left. I assume that many of our listeners are saying, I want to learn a lot more. So how, Keith, would someone learn either about what you're doing at City or about, as you said, just the new vocabulary? Mm. Look, there's a lot of reading material out there. In fact, you can get lost in it. You know, I'd be happy to uh, to provide a couple of pointers. So here's a couple here. Uh, there's a wonderful book by uh, Christiana Figueres, the former head of the UNFCCC, and Tom Karnak. And it's a brilliant book around the transformation that we're going we're going through. So look up Christiana Figueres and Tom Karnak. And I must admit, I've forgotten the name of the book for a moment. But there's some other great reading material. I mentioned Professor Johan Rockström before, more scientific-based around planetary boundaries, etc. There's some of the papers at the Financial Times. He's producing some really good daily material on, on all of these issues we've been talking about. So I really recommend... Yeah, the Financial Times is a great source, but other newspapers as well are providing it. As far as City is concerned, we're out there. We, we, are, we are seeing clients, both large clients, but also small companies. And certainly we'd be very happy to hear from you know, your audience, and Maureen, to, to talk more about some of these things. But certainly our engagement with clients is a, is a very important, our marketing and our communication is a very important part of, a part of impact as well. So I think there's a lot of different sources. Probably the biggest challenge is, is picking the right ones and, and not getting lost in the in the overwhelming number of sources. We'll post a blog with this interview and I'll work with you to make sure that we get those sources listed because to your point, there's so much to read and so much to listen to and folks are busy and, and it would be a shame to invest hours in something that was less valuable. Exactly. And I'll, I'll be delighted to, to provide some more details there. And uh, so it's a, my, my personal recommended reading list. There's another one by Sir Ronald Cohen and that I mentioned a moment ago, his collaboration with Harvard University. By the way, there's also a great, a really great podcast that, again, Christiana Figueres and Tom Karnak host, which is a weekly podcast interviewing leaders, business leaders, activists, etc. And it's very entertaining, but incredibly informative. And again, I'll provide the name when I remember it. But I think it's it's called Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism. Thank you so much, Keith, for the work you have done, the work you are doing at City, and the work you will continue doing to change the entire landscape of how we live as a 
global ecosystem. Well, Noreen, it's been a great pleasure. I mean, it really has been enjoyable speaking with you as well. And and in reverse, I'd like to congratulate you for what, what you're doing with conveying the message about the importance of inspired and informed leadership for the 21st century. There's, there's probably nothing more important at the pinnacle, which is about ultimately leadership. And uh, you're doing a brilliant job, Maureen. So thank you. I've really enjoyed the, uh, the conversation. Thank you for investing your precious time with us today. We're delighted to share the wisdom from the International Leadership Association 2020 Global Leadership Conference, Leading at the Edge. We encourage you to join for additional conversations. Please bookmark this podcast, subscribe, like it, share it with your friends and colleagues. Most importantly, thank you for focusing on elevating your own leadership and making an impact in the world today.